You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today I have with me uh, in our lovely offices at the Atlanta Healing Center, David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, Susan. We're trying this new format to see if um, the long trek that we sometimes have to make on Tuesday afternoons can't be done a little bit easier by broadcasting from our office. So we hope that this works well. If you have any comments, please go to America's Web Radio Facebook Live page, and you can give them comments there, or you can leave your thoughts with us on our Facebook page, Atlanta Healing Center, or the Atlanta Healing Center website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Excuse me. We hope that you all had a lovely holiday. And because of the holiday, we decided that we were going to have a little bit um, of a different show today. Reminded because, number one, I spent a lot of time watching college football. Number two, some time chatting with patients after their holiday experience. And number three, recognizing that this time of year, it's really very common for people to binge drink. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about necessarily people having the disease of addiction and drinking in their normal way, but we're talking about people that might not have addiction that can still find themselves in a lot of trouble binge drinking on the holidays. So tis the season for binge drinking, and we thought we'd talk about some of the risks, uh, some of the dangers, and some of the literature around this. So your thoughts, guys? Well, a lot of the articles that we looked at are specifically connected to binge drinking and, the, and, and different aspects that it has on the mood and on anxiety. But I think more in terms of the initial discussion related to how there are a lot of people who will binge over Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's because that's kind of associated in our society with what you do over Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, whether you're binging on alcohol or you're binging on turkey. Um, there's this this whole, we're going to way over consume. And as you were saying, people can get themselves into major trouble and they can end up with a diagnosis as a result of that trouble that's going to go with them for the rest of their life if they're not, if they're not somewhat mindful of what's going on. Um, so spending some time there, I think, is just, just really important. And I think even um, to clarify for people what binge drinking is and what is low risk. And those of you who are watching us, uh, you can see I did do the bunny ears, low risk. Low risk drinking for anybody um, over the age of 65, anyone 65 and older, or a female of any age, low-risk drinking is described as one standard drink and no more than that per day and no more than seven standard drinks per week. So a standard drink is often a definition that we need to help people with because you would be surprised how rarely you actually get served one standard drink. True. 
And most alcoholics are not going to go back to a place that serves them a standard drink. <laughs> They're looking for the places that are going to be or heavy much force. heavier than that. But there are standards based on the type of alcohol, whether it's a beer or a glass of wine right. or a shot. Um, a, a standard shot is an ounce and a half of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've got a camera to look at. <laughs> and the and the beer is six percent by volume. No, three. Three per, oh, three percent. <laughs> yes, you're drinking a little heavy octane there, Mr. Daly. Uh, IPAs. <laughs> years and years ago. Years and years ago. <laughs> they didn't even have IPAs then. So a standard beer, twelve ounce container. That um, not we aren't looking at the high gravity beers that are nine percent or some I've seen even as high as 13%. Uh, that would be uh, consistent with three or four drinks. So uh, you have to look at the amount of alcohol in the in the container of beer, and it should be the three, three and a half percent, and no more than 12 ounces is a standard drink. Wines differ a little bit on the top. So as we know, Red wine has more alcohol per volume than this white. So the standard drink of red wine is four ounces. Now, um, my little water bottle here is eight ounces. This is a little water bottle. This is not a giant, huge water bottle. My little water bottle here, half of this, two. <laughs> would be two standard, standard drinks, drinks of, water. of wine uh, if it were red wine. If it's white wine, you can have five ounces. So five ounces for white wine because it has lower alcohol content. Four ounces of red wine, um, standard drinks. So, again, if you're a woman of any age, if you're a man or a woman over the age of 65, one standard drink per day, no more than seven per week, and no, you cannot save up all seven for the holiday weekend. That would be a binge. That would be a binge. So um, if you are a man under the age of 65, low-risk drinking, not no risk, but low-risk drinking, is defined as no more than two standard drinks per day and no more than 14 per week. So that is um, probably a lot less alcohol than most people think of when they're thinking about um, alcohol. Patterns. Yeah, alcohol yeah. Con- consumed. And and that's low risk. It's not no risk Correct. because as as a lot of studies have begun showing, there is not a safe amount of alcohol in terms of the impact it's having on the body. When we're talking about bench drinking, classically we talk about people having four or more drinks in a single setting. Correct. Um, and some of the studies will define binging a little bit differently. But we, we pretty much have always thought about it in terms of four, four or more in the same single, singular little drinking event um, is a binge experience. I know most college, or a lot of college students, when they think about bench drinking in college, four is just the start. Right. Four is just it's where this is what we're having, or we go out to go um, do some actual drinking. So that's the pre-party drinking. 
So we're still talking about binge drinking that's way less than a lot of people when they're actually binge drinking. Correct. So with those um, parameters defined, I think for a lot of us, if we were around uh, alcohol all over the Thanksgiving holiday and people were drinking in our presence, again, not to take others' inventory and not to be judgmental, but to really be aware of how much alcohol gets consumed, particularly on a day where the drinking time isn't after 5 p.m. It may be that people are coming over early for brunch or they're coming early to tailgate before one of the college uh, games. And so when drinking begins earlier in the day, it seems a whole lot easier to consume a lot more significant amounts of alcohol over a period of time. And again, we see people who have the disease of addiction related particularly to alcohol are able to consume large amounts of alcohol and still, for the most part, appear functional. Um, We know that over the holidays, People are tempted because the drinks are there. You're pouring yourself sometimes, um, and everyone seems to be engaged in drinking. That it's a lot easier to consume more alcohol than you intended. Well, and and one of the things that used to kind of throw me was that when people that normally don't drink right. are drinking, mm-hmm. it's almost licensed for a person with alcoholism to just really tie one up or drink a lot more. So you're you're seeing not just increased drinking in people who might not normally drink because of the occasion, but you're also saying, Michael, then that we're seeing people who have issues with alcoholism or addiction to alcohol that just gives them permission to start earlier, drink more, stay later. Right. So it's, easier, it's easier for them to justify whatever it is that they're doing. So everybody begins to have some issues with uh, with drinking potentially in these kinds of situations. So we're now that we've defined binge drinking, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the risks related to binge drinking. So please stay tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business practices, and fascinating business professionals to get an insider view of how America works. This is David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC, your success is our goal. Addiction recovery is about more than just not using. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all aspects of your physical, psychological, and social needs. Please call us at 770-696-9862, or you can reach us on the web at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. This is America's Web Radio. And you're listening to Dr. Susan Blank in our Atlanta Healing Center treatment program. Uh, with me are Michael Daly and David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. And we're talking about binge drinking. Have experienced uh, by watching some TV shows and talking to some patients. Apparently, there was probably a lot of binge drinking going on over the weekend. And because of that, we thought we should spend a little bit of time on this subject because this is dangerous. It's dangerous not just for people who have the disease of addiction, although certainly this is a time of high relapse when people are in situations and uh, locations involved in activities where alcohol may be available, stress is high, and the risk of relapse uh, goes up exponentially. But I, I want to even, even though we clearly acknowledge those issues, and with our patients in particular, I want to back up, though, and talk about the risks associated with binge drinking for people who don't have the disease addiction. There was a very interesting study that was released last March, March of 2019, from the University of Illinois at Chicago, which was talking about the effects on adolescents later in their life if they binge drink as a a youth. So binge drinking, even if they stop drinking and don't go on to have a problem with alcohol or other drugs, Uh, This study showed a very interesting relationship with the development of anxiety. What? Go ahead, go. No. But what was so interesting, um, it's it's really looking at the epigenetics, um, which is how how not necessarily what your your genes are um, predestining you for, but how your your genes are responding to the environment and there's their the things that are impacting them now and part of what they're recognizing is that when the brain is developing and you have the binge exposure to alcohol 
that the impact on the amygdala, right. um, which is part of the emotional regulation, it's our burglar alarm, and mm-hmm. it's so crucial in the in the recovery of addiction and in the pathways of addiction. Part of what we know about with addiction is that the amygdala is not functioning. Um, completely, totally calm and relaxed and not going off at all when you're in a really dangerous situation and in complete panic mode when you're in a very relaxed, calm, um, non-threatening situation. Part of what the study is showing is that when the developing brain is exposed to binge levels of alcohol, that it is impacting the development of the amygdala and that perhaps helps to explain part of why we see the amygdala responding. What it's showing for them, though, is that it's, it's creating anxiety in later, later in life. So it's causing what they're... I don't know that they've gotten so far as to say cause, but they are at a point of saying that there is a much higher tendency towards anxiety. Among, among adolescents who have binge drank uh, as children and then going on later on in their life and they're no longer consuming alcohol. What, um, just real quickly, what constitutes an adolescent? I think that would be helpful for our audience. Well, I think <laughs> um, the Atlanta Healing Center definition of an adolescent is uh, anyone under the age of 25 mm-hmm. if they're a woman or 26 or 27 if they're a man. Technically, um, the definition of adolescence is usually somewhere from the ages of 12 uh, to 16, 17, or 18. I think that's what most researchers, when they're looking at it, when we look at really aging from a brain development scenario, mm-hmm. you don't get a fully adult brain until your mid to late 20s. So that's when your prefrontal cortex in the area by your forehead actually gets fully myelinated and then the brain has the capacity to have executive function. All of the decision-making, problem-solving, weighing and balancing risks. So that's so, my definition of adolescence. In these studies, it's under the age of 18. Okay, because it, that changes a lot of things. It does. It does. And, and I just wanted to point that out. Thank you, Michael, because that's a that's a good thought. What what we consider adolescence and adolescent behavior is often um, not um, the norm. The norm within what we would call the adolescence by definition age group. But I imagine in these studies, yes. adolescence is still under eighteen or Correct. up to eighteen. Correct. Um, we know the brain is still massively developing for the next several years after that, the difference between an 18-year-old and a 22-year-old is amazing. Um, And in particular, for a brain at that stage of the development, when there's so much going on, to be dealing with that impact of alcohol. So the way that they studied this um, initially was in rats, and they would give these adolescent rats uh, two days of alcohol exposure, then they would give them two days of no alcohol in their um, their watering dish. Then they would give them two days of exposure. And this is how they simulated heavy binge drinking for, um, for human adolescents. And they were able to see that these rats then 
taken away from alcohol and allowed to mature, <coughs> that they were much more likely to exhibit symptoms of anxiety and that um, this is well and above what would have been expected for that individual given the exposure to other anxiety-provoking stimuli that we can produce in the laboratories for, for rats. So noticing this, noticing the changes in the amygdala and then looking at adolescent um, children and as they grow older, seeing this tendency towards anxiety, we see anxiety a lot in our patients with um, the disease of addiction related to alcohol. The, um, a common reason for people to start using alcohol is sometimes social anxiety. Mm-hmm. And serendipitously, they discover that, oh, if I have a drink before I go to this party or before I go to this football game, I can feel so much more relaxed and so much more calm and have a good time and they realize that alcohol helps with their anxiety, which, unfortunately, it really does. Mm-hmm. Bonus in the beginning, but... It turns. It turns on. And what I, I think we actually see is that the anxiety presents itself more as noncompliance. Mm-hmm. That so often, because the addicts don't have the ability to just express, hey, that makes me really anxious... They'll end up just not doing what they agree to do or or what you've suggested or what they said. Oh, yeah, that would be a wonderful thing. I should do that. But they end up not doing it. And as has been pretty common in, in a lot of our um, our current clients is that they'll end up binging on other things, binging on um, um, Netflix, Netflix. <laughs> turkey. Um, food and television or video games mm-hmm. um, vid- or or um, social media, internet, something that keeps them completely distracted and not walking through the angst of beginning to rebuild their lives. Um, Well, the other thing is that when people around the person using the alcohol, their anxiety rises too because they don't know what's going to happen, what. You know, is this mm-hmm. person going to have two beers and be nice, or are they going to be, you know, seven beers and, and turn into Dr. Jekyll? So it, it becomes um, uh, the, the situation itself creates anxiety for people. Then when we add to it that as people use alcohol more and more in their lives, that uh, their body becomes physiologically dependent on it, and when the alcohol is removed because they slept overnight or they've made a decision that I'm not going to drink for Lent or I'm going to take January off from alcohol, when, when they take away alcohol for a few days, a few weeks, even a month or two, then now they've got two things happening. They've got the withdrawal, which creates the situation of increased blood pressure, increased heart rate, increased body temperature. Their burglar alarm system is going off. Their sympathetic nervous system is discharging. And that creates a feeling of withdrawal and a feeling of anxiety. Plus, their own anxiety disorder that they may have had is now no longer treated. It's exacerbated. And so now we've got even more anxiety. 
So we see this really commonly. But this study um, from the University of Illinois, Chicago, I think is one of the first ones to really show that even if that person doesn't go on to develop the disease of addiction or have addiction manifested in its life, that this early exposure during this critical phase of formation of our burglar alarm system, our amygdala, that early exposure to alcohol in a binge drinking form, which let's face it, that's how most adolescents use any drugs. It's when they have an opportunity, they use as much as they can. Mm -hmm. So when they're now exposing the brain and the amygdala is having to cope with this sudden shift in um, in the neurotransmitters within the brain, the chemistry of the brain, the direct toxicity of alcohol in the brain, we see that these brains are now wired to be more anxious mm -hmm. in the future. And this is an epigenetic change. This person may not have had an issue related to anxiety before. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the risks of binge drinking. Thanks for listening. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. We're live to you from the Atlanta Healing Center location here in the lovely North Cross. Uh, with me today are Michael Daly and David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. We are interested in your comments about whether this format is um, acceptable to you. If you have any suggestions or any questions, please feel free to go to America's Web Radio 
Facebook page and go to their login for Facebook Live because this is being broadcast live through Facebook. Uh, you can leave comments there or on the Atlanta Healing Center Facebook page or on our um, website, www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. So today we're talking about binge drinking and we're going to keep with the animal model. We're going to look at a study that was just released in November of 2019, right before Thanksgiving, on a biomarker um, developed by the Salk Institute for being able to determine who um, might be at risk for compulsive binge-type drinking. This was a very interesting study in that they were able to separate out three different groups of mice. Uh, group genetically that are low drinkers that occasionally drink don't don't seem to have any compulsion. High drinkers these are ones that drink um, large volumes and on a very regular basis if available. And then the compulsive drinkers, those drinkers that drink as much as they can as fast as they can as often as they have the opportunity to. Sounds like some adolescents. Sounds like some college fraternities. Sounds like some people that you might have observed over your Thanksgiving vacation. But this was really interesting that by looking at some neural pathways uh, within these rats or mice, I keep calling them rats, mice. Brain. Yeah, they were just mice. They were just mice. Only and, mice. And part of what was interesting was not only were they able to notice some biomarkers for the, the mice that were going to be of the three different types of groups. But then they also started giving them negative consequences, the classic thing about addiction. So they would give them um, um, bitter, bitter mm -hmm. something bitter in, in what they were drinking every so often. And what they found was there's the group of mice that don't drink that much that were drinking less if there was going to be a consequence. And the ones who drank a lot, but they would drink less if there was a consequence. And the third group that didn't care if there was a consequence at all, they just kept right on drinking, um, which is classic. <laughs> it is classic. It's, a, it's our classic definition, actually, of the disease of addiction, which is continued use in spite of consequences. We know that for, for people that have the disease of addiction and the compulsive use of drugs, alcohol, or addictive behaviors, that consequences may slow them down but it's not going to stop them. Ever. And that it's usually something outside themselves that intervenes. It's not their own, oh, I don't like this taste, this is too bitter, i got to go home, I have to be at work in the morning. Uh, none of that. Nope. Um, and these mice were true to form, very interestingly. They didn't care if it didn't taste good. They didn't care if it was bitter. They didn't care if there was any consequence associated with it. They were going to power through this time, it's going to be different. <laughs> but I'm not going to stop. Exactly. And so this was really interesting. They were also, yeah. with this group, able to predict who was going to start compulsively drinking. And that was by looking at uh, several locations in the brain and some of the communication circuits. So there's a part of the... Again, prefrontal cortex, the median forebrain bundle. So it's right here in the middle of your brain in, um, by your forehead. 
um, communicating with two areas called the periaqueductal gray matter, which is in the base of the brain. And that for um, mice that were getting ready to become compulsive drinking or going to binge drink, there was a lot of activity between these two parts of the brain that was different than the other um, mice. And they were able to see this pattern and could predict, even without having seen any behavior from these mice as to which genetic group they might belong to, they were able to see that um, these are going to be the mice that are the compulsive. So it's like the brain starts the relapse or the the, the quest mm-hmm. prior to the actual use. Which is really interesting if we're going to be able to have these imaging studies. We're part of a study um, at uh, Stanford University looking at biomarkers in the EEGs right. um, of patients to see if we can better identify and more appropriately diagnose not just the disease of addiction, but other psychiatric disorders, and also then match more closely appropriate and effective treatments. So this idea that there are biomarkers in the brain, the way the brain behaves in certain circumstances, the way we're hooked up, if you will, uh-huh. um, going to be a lot more information about this in the um uh, in the upcoming years, but very exciting time. And this was really interesting that they could predict who was going to be in which of these categories. And the thing, I'm just looking at this from the kind of, we know that a lot of times. Right. And as an alcoholic, many of us grew up in families that there was a genetic disposition towards it. Right. And that didn't even stop us. Right. You know, so even if we know ahead of time and we can predict, that doesn't mean that we're going to stop just because of the prediction. Right. And unfortunately, as we have learned, uh, just simply educating someone about the disease of addiction, well, this is what you have and these are the genes and Here's your own genetic testing, and here's what your brain map looks like. That in and of itself is not sufficient because consequences... Be damned. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. um, We know it for our mice um, Mm -hmm. who have the disease of addiction. We know it for our patients that the simplified definition is continued use of drugs or alcohol in spite of consequences. Mm-hmm. And um, here again, we're seeing play out. So to your point, and before we go on to our next one, Michael, um, that would make many people say, well, then what's the use? If consequences don't matter, if this is brain wiring, if it's genetics, then, you know, are these folks just hopeless? And is there anything that we can do then to help people? Well, I think that a lot of times a person has to go through whatever path they're going to mm-hmm. go through. They've got to finally reach a bottom where the consequences do matter and the consequences have gotten so great or their life has become so horrible that they take action. And that's sad, but it's 
many times that's the case. Well, we know that people do get into recovery who have had these patterns because the fact that we're able to now begin predicting these patterns doesn't mean that we haven't seen these patterns for Correct. a long time. Correct. And initially when when 12-step recovery first started, it was um, the, the bottom of the barrel people saving each other. But their whole philosophy was, hey, we can help people get out of this sooner, sooner than we did. And, and that's been shown to be true. Definitely judges sending people to treatment mm-hmm. has been shown to change lives and change family patterns. Um, part of what we've, we've, we've talked about with our family groups is the fact that you're here isn't necessarily going to keep your kids from trying alcohol, but real often they won't have to go as far down the pathway as you did because you've introduced recovery into the family system. So I think that, yes, treatment helps. Uh, treatment works. People do get better. Families do heal. My hope with some of this um, ability through genetic testing, through looking at biomarkers within the brain, that we may actually have better prevention strategies. Right. That rather than the adolescent... Uh, engaging in binge drinking with the friends because that's what all the kids in the neighborhood are doing and then setting themselves up for either a lifetime of addiction and or uh, a lifetime of anxiety disorders that in being able to identify we may be able to intervene and protect that brain because we do know that if people are not exposed to drugs and alcohol before the age of 25, it is pretty rare that people become addicted. Now, it's not impossible, and we've certainly seen cases where people have the genetic loading that for a variety of reasons, whether it's religious, whether it's growing up in an alcoholic family, they've chosen not to, and then they get exposed because they have an accident or an illness that requires them to take pain medicine, and then it's off and running. But that's the exception. If we can keep keep kids away from exposure to drugs and alcohol, marijuana, nicotine, um, (coughs) alcohol, if we can do that, uh, we have a much greater chance that their brains will not be affected nearly as tragically, um, that they are less likely to develop the disease addiction. So my hope is with these biomarkers that we'll actually be able to mitigate some of the impact that this has. You know, um, a lot of people out there talk about the addiction cure. Right. And when you look at it and you read about the addiction cure, they're talking about abstinence. But for the alcoholic who's looking for the cure, the obsession is, I want to figure out how I can drink like normal people. Right. I want to be able to have just one drink and be happy with that and go home without having this compulsion to of keep course drinking. I said two drinks right <laughs> two. I was staying under You're the four under the age of 65 oh that's right that's right conceivably these things and looking at these areas um, there they may in fact be a cure down yes. the road where you can actually help people be able to drink on a normal basis we're not there yet we're not yes. doing it at the Atlanta Healing no, Center no no but, um, I know there are, there is a type of neurofeedback where they are specifically training that region of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's focused necessarily on addiction, but that's certainly an area of research. 
So there are, I think, a lot of exciting things uh, that can come out of this. Uh, but the, um, the important thing is to recognize that binge drinking is much more difficult and causes more problems than people drinking a little bit every day. I am not recommending that. I am not saying drink a little bit every day. But what I am saying is that binge drinking creates significantly more problems for your brain and your liver and other body functions than if someone is doing low-risk drinking, one to two drinks, depending on their gender and age, uh, per day. So binging is dangerous. Binging is dangerous. And not only is binging dangerous, but it's also um, giving a false hope. Correct. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about binge drinking. So please This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hi, this is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour on America's Web Radio. If you'd like to hear an eclectic mix of great programs from relationships with Dr. Ann Schiebert to homegrown veggies and from classic cars to the Constitution, we've got programs for discerning listeners at www.americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is America's Web Radio, and we're coming to you live from the Atlanta Healing Center. I have David Donaldson and Michael Daly with me, and we're discussing the risks of binge drinking. So we've talked about um, what's low-risk drinking. We've talked about what is binge drinking. We're certainly aware that um, adolescents and binge drinking, bad idea. We're aware that anybody and binge drinking, probably a very bad idea. But why do we think there's more binge drinking? And 
this article was really interesting to me. Um, one that was released in early November of 2019 from Iowa State University. Um, the amount of money spent on advertising alcohol, particularly advertising alcohol to adolescents. And this was um, pretty eye-opening. I mean, it was it was directly proportional. The amount of money spent by the company um, was able to predict what brands the the students, looking at high school students, what brands they were going to recognize, which brands they had tasted, which brands they had tasted in the previous month, um, and which brands they predicted they would be consuming as adults. So definitely the the advertisers well spent dollars was was a massive predictor of what the adolescent population would be drinking and they were looking at the high school they were looking at high school students who let who us all remember are, are not legal right who have to in a certain way get possession of this alcohol through you know through means that <laughs> bribery are, threats petty theft um, <laughs> you name it, they, they, they will do it. But I think this is something that certainly the tobacco companies have learned a long time ago, that most kids start being exposed to tobacco very early, 12, 13, 14 years of age, and that the first brand that they smoke, the brand that their parents smoke, is very likely to be the brand that when they are actually old enough and legally can smoke, to be the brand they will buy and continue. So if you get a customer early on, uh -huh. then you are very likely to have a customer. The brand loyalty is very strong. Yes. And this was a really interesting study because... Um, they looked at a little over 1,500 middle school and high school students. Half of them had had one alcoholic drink in the past year. 31% had had one or more drinks in the last month. And 43% engaged in heavy, regular drinking. Mm -hmm. Middle school and high school. So that was a very interesting when they were asked to name their favorite TV commercial. So they weren't uh, specifically said, what's your favorite beer commercial? They said, what's your favorite, favorite commercial? commercial. Um, Alcohol-related ads had the highest reaction, followed by soft drinks at 31%, specific fashion brands, 19%, automotive and sports teams. A quarter of those said that they owned alcohol-related products, so T-shirts, hats, um, banners in their rooms. Uh, these kinds of products were owned by... Cozies. Or, Cozies, yes. 41% yeah. of these children had brand-name alcohol-related products uh, of merchandise, mm -hmm. which I think is really astounding. astounding. Um 99% of middle schooler and high school students surveyed had heard of Budweiser and Bud Light, the top spender of advertising money, and 44% said that was their preferred brand or branding. 
Mm-hmm. So direct correlation between the most, the most money spent, most, most recognized, and, and acquired. And so part of the study was looking at the advertisers and the approach they're using to grab the children's minds. Right. They're, they're using um, cognitive studies to know what grabs hold of a children's mind. And part of what they recognize is if it's put out there in a story form, then the, then the person, and they were specifically looking at children's minds, pay attention and grab hold of it. And I think about like the famous Budweiser commercials where you Those see the and the Clydesdales and everything. And, and the dog. You picture the, the dog and the being rescued and all of that. You see the <laughs> whole story mm-hmm. and you remember Budweiser beer. Right. Yep. Um, the use of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of silliness, cartoons, those kinds of things also really appeal um, to kids. Um, not saying they don't appeal to adults, but it's so specific for appealing to children. One of our favorite commercials right now here in the Atlanta area is the one for Xfinity TV with the Sluskies. It's these two turtles, that have, well, three turtles, a husband, wife, and kid, and they are just Everyday life. Everyday life, slow skis, really hooked on doing things their own way, nothing too fast. And, you know, it's Xfinity TV. We know that. We think about it. We subscribe to it. And it works. And it works because it's grabbing a story and it's these cute characters with a cute name. Well, and I I, I come back to this thought where you talk about male advertisement compared to female advertisement, where females want more... Um, emotional uh, like feelings mm-hmm. and males want visual mm-hmm. they go for the visual the splashes the fun things that blowing thing. up uh-huh. yeah. um, lots of activity things action moving quickly so they've got this down they know who they're appealing to and while it may be entertaining to those of us who are over the age of 18 do not be um, at all confused with who they're actually advertising to. And I think this um, important study out of Iowa State shows us that uh, these companies know full well that they're advertising to children, they're advertising in sporting events, they're advertising in ways that are online. Now, most of us adults think about getting our advertisements through print media, through television, through radio, but we're completely missing the ads that are particularly targeted to our young people who are using social media. Instagram. Instagram, uh, Facebook. Well, they don't use Facebook. They don't. I'm sorry. I just aged myself. That's very old. Um, but when they're using these other forms of social media and they're getting these very quick, funny, bright, catchy kinds of ads directed to them with a lot less control that many times their family members are not aware these kids are seeing. Right. And this is uh, very clear that in movies and television shows, we see product placement. The particular beer that is being consumed, the alcohol that's being consumed within the movie um, or well, within the, the TV show. Just like I brought up earlier, I know this is off topic as far as um, alcohol, but 
I noticed recently, since the vaping mm-hmm. um, has become popular, we're seeing a lot of vaping commercials. We're seeing a lot of talk about, you know, various um, scents and, and flavors and, and that type of thing and how it's clean. But recently, I've been seeing a lot of commercials about this pouch with that contains nicotine. Right. There's no mention that it's a chewing tobacco because tobacco is banned, but they can advertise this because it's a nicotine pouch. The FDA can control the advertising of tobacco and tobacco-related products, but nicotine is the wild, wild west. So as they are able to produce these advertisements, Particularly, we saw this with Juul, that it was directly um, being advertised to children. The flavoring, the colors, um, the, the people advertising were children advertising to other children. They were allowed in the schools, actually, yes. in the, in the um, prevention programs for nicotine addiction. Uh, they were allowed to use these particular products. Uh, they're not now, but initially they were. So a lot of this is um, is sneaking through, but do not be at all confused. This is directly aimed at children because it works. It, it works. If you get a child addicted, they will be a loyal customer for the rest of their life. From our standpoint, if we could con- uh, completely eliminate. Um, the child being exposed to drugs or alcohol, we would put ourselves out of business. <laughs> and I would be very happy if we could do that. We need a vacation. We need a vacation. <laughs> um, please let us know how this works for you. If this was an okay format, if you could hear us, understand us, and see us. Uh, if you have other questions or topics you'd like us to discuss, we're very happy to uh, try and address them in our upcoming podcast, and please let us know if um, you have any concerns. We want to wish you all a very happy week, and we really look forward to seeing you next week on Detail Edition. Thanks for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.